You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Well, I'm walking into my local pharmacy here, pick up my cholesterol medicine. Doctor did a blood test last year, said that while my good cholesterol was high, uh, the bad cholesterol was also a little high. Trying to cut back on the cheeseburgers, but the doctor also wrote a prescription for one of those statins that kind of gets your cholesterol down. See the prescription counters over here. Hi, John. I'm uh, here to pick up my statin medicine. I think my doctor phoned in the prescription. Okay, let me check on it. Okay, just a moment. Okay, here you go. Yeah, here's your medicine. Oh, wait a minute. This, um, I mean, do, do you give this to other people? Yes, a lot of people. Well, wait a minute. You've given the same medicine to other people than me. Are, are the people you give this statin medicine to anything like me? Yes, they have a similar problem like you. But wait a minute. They, okay, they have high cholesterol, but their body chemistry is not mine. I mean... I have a different blood type, maybe, a, a different immune system, different drug sensitivities, and, and yet you give them the same drug? Well, tried it out. If you're allergic to it, you couldn't not respond so well, then doctor probably going to consider change to switch a different medicine for you. But, Jen, I don't buy my clothes or shoes that way. I mean, it isn't one shoe fits all. I, they may not be customized, although my expensive suits are, of course, but drugs... The same ones are given to everybody, whether you have high blood pressure or diabetes or even toe fungus. But I'm not everybody. I'm me. Me. And I gotta be me. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. I gotta be me. What else can I be but what I am? Yeah. Okay, well, thanks, Jen. Uh, do I pay up front or do I pay you? You have to pay here. Thank you. We all want to be seen as individuals, and never more so than when we're being seen by a physician, whether it's a routine checkup or treatment for a disease or a medical condition. In some sense, medicine's always been personal. I mean, my doctor weighed me, took my blood pressure, took my habits into account, like those cheeseburgers, before prescribing statins. But medicine is about to get really intimate. With the insights we've gained by decoding the human genome, such as the identification of genes that signal risk for particular diseases, we're learning not only about which individuals carry what risk, say, for a particular cancer, but how they might respond to treatment based on their genetic profile. We're all different, in important ways, at the level of the genome. And that's what's driving the new world of personalized medicine. And you may have to be brave to enter it, because, well, do you really want to know what illnesses may loom in your future? It's not clear that any of us are prepared for that information. The medical landscape is quickly changing, and no one knows that more than a scientist who radically reshaped it. Biologist Craig Venter's pioneering work in helping decode the human genome has led to discoveries that have revolutionized how we see ourselves as homo sapiens and as individuals. And we're poised to sharpen our focus from the human genome to your genome. Back in 2000, you couldn't afford to have your own genome sequenced. Sequencing the human genome cost millions, even billions of dollars. But start dropping your coins in those piggy banks by 2011, and it's coming up fast. The cost for personal genome sequencing will be merely a couple of thousand dollars, so says Dr. Venter, a price drop that could change our approach to health and disease. To truly make it where we can start to understand human biology at the genetic level, we have to have tens of thousands of human genomes. And understanding the genetic basis of disease, of human traits, of evolution, we need tens of thousands to tens of millions. So without 
really good, inexpensive, fast technology, that would never happen. So the idea is I could go, if I had a couple thousand dollars, I could have my own Molly's genome sequenced? In 18 months or so, I mean, you can get a quick uh, survey of it from a couple of these online sites like 23andMe or Navigenics. I think 23andMe is $400, Navigenics like 2500 or something now. But that's you know just a snapshot of a small portion of your genome. For the same cost of those snapshots, hopefully in a few years, you'll be able to get the entire 6 billion base pairs as a starting point for interpreting things. Now, you say that this will transform medicine, you've said. You've also said that this will transform our species. How so? Well, I think by understanding truly who we are in our own evolution, understanding our human variation, understanding how we're truly individualistic. I don't know if you have siblings, but your genome is really unique to you, and it's uh, even though you started with chromosomes from both your parents, you're a unique combination of that genetic material. And we're all taught that we're part of averages. Uh, But averages don't actually apply to individuals. It doesn't matter what the average is. Uh, Your genetic code, your environment will determine your outcomes, quite often very different from what the average population will be. And this applies to medicine because you may look at two people and think, well, they're similar, they're humans, two humans, maybe they have these other attributes, the same height, the same weight, or whatever it is, the sex. But when it it goes to treating disease, their genome will direct a very different outcome. Well, hopefully, that's where we're hoping to get uh, by predicting risk for disease, maybe preventing disease much more effectively in the future. If you know that from certain gene changes that you've inherited, that you have a risk for getting a certain disease, and we learn enough about the genetic code and the environment, uh, many diseases will be completely preventable. Can you go further than that? And let's say you and I both have a risk for a certain disease we find out, but even how that disease manifests itself is something that could be predicted or understood if we understood the disease at the at the level of the gene. Uh, not just the gene of the genome. and. Uh, because it's not just single genes that, that are associated with disease. You know, there are genes that are genetic changes associated with health and wellness, uh, some that are associated with negative traits and disease. Uh, each of us are a, a combination of all those plus the environment. So making predictions of exact outcomes with our limited knowledge right now is virtually impossible. Now, um, when we talk about the, the subject of cancer, and this idea that tumors actually have genomes, what does that mean? Well, your genome is your collection of genetic material. So when cells become cancerous, they get unregulated cell growth. And it turns out there are some changes in the genetic code that lead to that state. Some of those we can inherit from our parents. Over 95% of them or more come from changes during our life from radiation exposure, from sunlight exposure, from toxin exposure, from random changes in the genetic code as our cells divide. The accumulation of that genetic damage is what can lead to cancer. But there's additional changes. Quite often, once tumor cells start, their genetic code really becomes scrambled. And so the genetic code in tumor cells looks radically different from normal cells. And so given the, the fact that many genes and many mutations in genes will give rise to cancer, you could have a personalized medicine that would actually correct on all those number of fronts, target something like cancer at the level of the, of the gene. Well, let me correct it. We won't be correcting the genes, but we may have preventative medicines or lifestyle changes or other things to counteract those effects. In heart disease, we're learning how to do that. Some things you can change, uh, diet and exercise. Other things, uh, you can take things like statins, which lower cholesterol, which lower the risk for disease. So that has a huge impact by trying to make changes that can overcome uh, what might be in your genetic code. It's interesting. You're, you're correcting my use of, you know, correcting the genes also says that the, the public in some ways is not ready to, to talk about this. We don't know how to talk about what's actually going on. There'll be one day where we go into our doctor's office and we come back with this information about our genome and our genes and you have 11.8% higher risk of X. 
it's very early days in terms of learning how to talk about that and actually what it means. It, it is a complex language, um, but this information is less than a decade old. So we're confronted with a whole new way of looking at it, and there's a lot of ancient uh, language and thought that goes into uh, the history of humanity thinking about genetics. I don't know anybody that at some stage didn't ask questions of different traits that they got from which parent or which traits they passed on to their kids. I think it's part of the human existence to think about genetics without even knowing the mechanisms. Darwin's proposal about evolution and uh, selective uh, change uh, he knew nothing about the genetic code. So now we're learning the fundamental mechanisms of observations for centuries that we now have to put in to overcome a lot of prejudice out there in both the scientific community and the public at large. Uh, when we started uh, sequencing the human genome, uh, most people seem to think in a genetically deterministic fashion. That means you are what your genes say you are and no more and no less. Well, that's simply not how our genes work. Maybe at the physical level, we're much more genetically deterministic species, but you don't have a set of genes that made you a reporter. Uh, I don't have a set of genes that made me a scientist. Our genes don't determine our life outcomes. They may determine, uh, to some extent, our physical characteristics, but body size, uh, height are affected by nutrition and other things as well. So. It is complex. Uh, as a species, we want to keep overly simplifying things, getting down to there's a gene or a gene change that causes breast cancer. Turns out that's probably not true in too many cases. So we're looking for simplistic answers, and the scientific community was looking for simplistic answers. Uh, that's why people thought there might be 100,000 or more human genes, because people simplistically wanted a gene for each human trait and condition and we're stunned when we only found uh, 20,000 or so. It diminishes us. We feel like it diminishes us, that as humans we want to think that we're more complex than that. Well, in fact, the smaller number of genes it shows that we are, in fact, far more complex. Uh, the models people had were extremely simplistic. We were machines. Uh, if you had a broken spark plug wire, you replaced it. We're unique combinatorial of tens of thousands of different traits working in a hundred trillion different cells. Finally, do you think when we look at the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe, do you think an alien life would have a genome? I think uh, we will find life throughout the universe. Uh, it may be too early to find uh, intelligent life, but uh, where we find life, I think we'll have the same chemical bases and the same attributes as life here. It will have a genetic code as that's basically the software of life. And I think the same chemistry will result largely in the same outcome throughout the universe. And with any luck, you'll be around. You can help us decode it. Well, it's going to take a lot of scientific breakthroughs over the next uh, half a century to guarantee that, but I'm hoping that's possible. Thank you very much for talking with us. Nice talking with you. Craig Venter is a biologist and genome scientist. He talked about how understanding individual genomes will lead to personalized medicine, such as how we treat cancer. I'm the director of the Helen Diller Family Comprehensive Cancer Center, and my name is Frank McCormick. The Helen Diller Comprehensive Cancer Center opened in the summer of 2009. It's focused on personalized medicine and on research that will allow cancer treatments to be tailored to individual tumors. First step is to, to understand the spectrum of mutations that cause cancer, and that's a, a, an activity that's going on right now at many different institutions using different technology. And we already have a pretty good idea of, at one level of some of the major mutations that drive different types of cancer, but we think there are a lot more yet to be discovered, and also we need to discover how they work in combinations. Dr. McCormick explained how genetic mutation can cause the growth of a cancer. For example, a kind of cancer gene called oncogene, which controls cell growth. Well, the gene that we work on most in my lab is a gene called RAS, R-A-S, the first oncogene identified in human tumors, actually 26, 7 years ago. It's basically an on-off switch, which normally in normal cells senses when cells should grow and not grow and acts like a simple switch, like a car switch, tells your car to run or not. But in cancer cells, you get stuck in the on state. 
and then as a result uh, the affected cells are driven to proliferate even though there's no external signal. So they're locked in the, in the active state. And the idea would be to find drugs that either switch it off or prevent that active switch which is locked in the active state from functioning. By understanding the genetic mutations that cause a tumor to grow, scientists can develop drugs targeted to a cancer tumor. The, the best example uh, is Herceptin, for example, which targets subset of breast cancers in which the HER2 new gene is amplified and is a driver of the tumor. Uh, so Herceptin targets that set of tumors where this one gene is out of control and it's not used on other tumors. Scientists are also developing smarter use of chemotherapy drugs. And that's, uh, in that case, we don't exactly understand how the cocktails work, but we do recognize that some people respond and some don't. And now we can use genetics to figure out the response of people and not the other ones, and therefore don't expose the um, non-responders to the chemotherapy. So it sounds like there are a couple different ways that this will work in the future. And one is is that if you're sick, you go in, and maybe you get a, a genetic profile of what's mm-hmm. going on with you. Yep. But wouldn't the other be that you actually can screen people for susceptibility to certain cancers? Is, is that also in the future? That is also in the future. In fact, it's, it's also right here. Individual people have different susceptibility to cancer based on the genetics. It's hard to spot those genes unless they're really dramatic, like BRCA1 and 2. But there are many other genes which are less dramatic but also have a major impact. And a lot of people are using high-tech genome analysis systems to find those genes and how they also work in combinations to make people risk for cancer. So are we talking about curing cancer? You know, I, I believe for the first time ever it will be cured. But we're still two or three major intellectual and technical breakthroughs away from that happening. But I think it can be done. Frank McCormick is director of the Helen Diller Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of California, San Francisco. And if you think personalized medical care is far beyond the horizon, well, stay tuned to meet the man who turned his body over to this new science and what his genetic tests revealed. Our exes get personal on Are We Alone? Science Radio for Thinking Species on Any World. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Well, you've probably heard that you can donate your body to science someday. That's the kind of philanthropy I'd like to reserve for some time when my body's not busy doing other things, like living. But leave it to a curious and still-breathing journalist to donate his body now. Anything for a good story, right? To understand the field of personalized medicine, writer David Ewing Duncan submitted his healthy 50-something-year-old self to a suite of geneticists, biologists, and neurologists. Some work at genetic testing services, such as the company 23andMe, mentioned by Craig Venter earlier. David underwent hundreds of blood tests, brain scans, and chemical analyses to find out what they revealed not only about his health, but the promise and the perils of the emerging field. Experimental Man is the result, a book in which David Ewing Duncan shares just what he discovered when he turned his body over to science. It involves having a lot of blood drawn, spit, various other ways to get to the cells that contain my DNA, and then uh, having, at this point, I think several million of my genetic markers have been tested. And out of those, there are several thousand markers that have actually been characterized that have something to do with a trait, like blue eyes or blonde hair or disease or you know, something of that sort. Now, you said you had to have blood drawn, and I know that you did for when they looked at the chemicals in your body, but for um, genetic testing, you do that too? Whatever happened to the swab and the cheek or just grabbing a glass that you drank from and we could get your DNA from that? It's blood, spit, and swabs, <laughs> and sort of like the old rock group, blood, sweat, and tears, but this is for the genetic age. So, And all, all you really need to do is somehow get an intact cell that they can break open. They did testing on your DNA. Um, You wanted to find out what genes you have. What did you find out? Well, I found out, first of all, when I'm asked that, 
people are always wondering, oh my gosh, what horrible thing do you have? And the reality is that most of us who reach adulthood, uh, like like me, and hopefully like you, and most of the people listening, you you would know by the time you reach adulthood if you've had a major genetic disorder. Because it really is, it's like a glitch in your programming and it's gonna really manifest you know, in most cases pretty early on, you know, Tay-Sachs disease or Down syndrome or something like that. But what they're looking for are more common disorders. And so I came out, being a healthy person, low or medium risk for most disorders. There were a couple things. And we're all gonna have something, right? I mean, you know, unfortunately we all will get sick and die at some point, you know, it's just a reality of life. Right. You found out you had higher risk of heart attack. That's right. right. That's probably the most interesting one. And even some geneticists who are somewhat skeptical of this information because it's so new and still needs some validation, they all say you should probably pay attention to these high-risk heart attack markers because the validation is that you have a heart attack. And you know other markers, like say for cancer or something, it might play out over the course of a long time. So what did they find exactly? You had your blood test and they come back and they say you have this gene and this gene says that you will have a whatever percentage higher risk of heart attack. But what do they actually present to you? Well, there are five or six primary genetic markers. And when I say markers, what I mean is uh, this is not an entire gene. So genes, if you think of the nucleotides, those A's, C's, T's, and G's, you know, the, the lettered codes that you that one sees, gene can be hundreds or even thousands of, of strings of those letters. But what we're talking about with these markers is often just two letters. What it is, it's, it's one of these letters out of the, the billions that you have, you know, we have six billion of these letters in our genome, one letter can be responsible for causing one to have a higher risk for a disease. In other words, we might have a different letter. I might have a G, you might have a T. And that's the difference between me having a high risk and you not. And these markers for heart attack will give you maybe a 20 or 30% higher risk factor. What was it in your case? It was, that's about what it was, mm-hmm. uh, or 1.3 times risk factor, which is about a 30%. So it's not an enormous risk factor as these things go. There's some that are much higher, sometimes multiple um, times like uh, Alzheimer's, the main marker for Alzheimer's, if you're high risk for that, and it's a very small percentage of people who are, but that's an, uh, I think it's a 17 times risk factor, that's huge. And most people who have that high risk uh, will probably get Alzheimer's. But I get the feeling that you've had some time to process some of this, as you have in the book. But when you first got the results that said, okay, you have a higher risk at heart attack, and you went into this thinking you're a very healthy man, and you are, and that was validated by the end of the book. You certainly look very healthy. But you found out that you had this risk, and it it startled you a bit. Well, it did the first time I was tested way back in 2002. It, it, I don't know why, but I seem to walk in thinking I'm healthy, therefore I'm not going to have anything. And we will all have something. I have, yeah, I have some other high risk. I have a high risk for macular degeneration, although I have other factors that tell me I have a low risk. So I don't know what to make of that. And that's part of the confusion. Really raises a big question of do we want to know? In, in your case, okay, so you back off some of the fatty foods. That's good. There, in some cases, there's something that you can do. But in some cases, there's nothing you could do, and it may change the way you live your life. No, that's right. And Alzheimer's is a, is a great example of that, too. There isn't an effective treatment for Alzheimer's. And that's been a big controversial one because some of these direct-to-consumer sites actually offer that test. And, you know, I had this sort of interesting experience of, of getting my family's data and being the kind of gatekeeper because of this project and opening up their data and finding out that my father and my brother are actually medium risk for Alzheimer's. It's still fairly low risk, and we don't have Alzheimer's in the family, so it's unlikely that probably that that will mean anything. Where this stuff starts getting truly serious is with these rare genetic disorders. And my brother does have a rare genetic disorder called osteogenesis imperfecta. And it's also known as the brittle bone disease. And what happens is there are variations of it, more severe or less severe, and he's kind of in the middle. But he was breaking bones for, you know, from the, almost the moment he was born. And we just thought he was accident prone. And, of course, we had no knowledge of the genetics behind this when he was born and growing up. And it it didn't really get severe until he was in his 30s. But the curious thing about that is with today's technology, 
or, or maybe in the next several years, that test may be in a battery of tests you, you would give a newborn. And let's say it comes out positive, and let's say that it happened to us. On the one hand, it would have protected my brother, who is disabled now because he's broken bones so many times. You know, before we really knew what was going on, he kept going out in, in the world, and, and, you know, maybe we would have prevented that. On the other hand, he had a normal life, by and large, for the first 30 years of his life. He was able to do, you know, sports and, and a lot of things that I know my mother would never have let him do if she'd known about this. So it's an interesting ethical dilemma, and we'll all be faced with these kind of situations, you know, say in the next several years. I'm speaking with David Ewing Duncan. He's a journalist and the author of Experimental Man, What One Man's Body Reveals About His Future, Your Health, and Our Toxic World. Well, you continued with your journey after you had your genes examined and you had your blood analyzed. Now for chemicals. What kind of chemicals were in your blood? Well, I set out to try to see what chemicals, especially the common chemicals like pesticides, dioxins, PCBs, plastic ingredients, things like that, that do tend to show up in the environment, you know, how much of them actually show up inside of people? And you learned that at least one toxic chemical was off the charts for you. Is it PBDE? These are flame retardants? Right. Am I saying that right? PBDE? Yeah, it's a family of chemicals called bromide flame retardants. Mm-hmm. And they've been basically banned or phased out in, in the West just uh, as of last year. So they're no longer being put into products. But these are really curious chemicals because they actually were, were put into virtually anything that can burn, clothes, you know, plastics and computers and TVs, couches, whatever, cars, airplanes, by law. You know, they, they, were, they were actually required to be in there. And they save lives uh, by, by slowing down, you know, if you're in a burning airplane or a building or something, they theoretically slow down the flames so you can get out. Uh, so there are, you know, good intentions with these chemicals, but some of them have escaped, and I ended up with levels way off the charts, and it was about 12 times the the normal level, way above even occupational levels, meaning people that work in the factories that make them. I even have higher levels, and this was a huge mystery. Where the heck did I, I get these flame retardants? Well, that might be found in the chapter entitled Idyllic Childhood in Kansas Except for the Toxic Waste Dump. So you grew up in Kansas. Yep. And there was a toxic waste dump there? Yep. And I didn't actually get the flame retardants there, but I got a lot of other chemicals there. I have very high levels of um, DDE, which is what DDT breaks down into. And DDT is the famous pesticide, you know, the Rachel Carson wrote about in Silent Spring, which was banned in the early 70s. Um, but when I was growing up in Kansas, they were spraying, still spraying the stuff. And so not surprisingly, I come up with pretty high levels. Even though my body has been slowly getting rid of this over time, as it does with all chemicals, I still have fairly high levels. Well, do you remember them spraying it? Is that what your exposure was? They were actually spraying it, I don't know. Oh, yeah. I, I more than remember it. I, I lived at a, at a lake. It was a lake community. And it was very nice, you know, as you said, idyllic place to grow up. Uh, woods and everything. We'd swim in the lake. There was a truck that came around and, and drove around the lake very slowly every year that sprayed for mosquitoes using DDT. And a couple of the years, we boys went and grabbed our bikes and we were riding around back in the plume, you know, holding our breath, being very brave. I mean, incredibly stupid is what we were really being. But, you know, who knows? That, that probably is where I, I got this. The toxic waste dump, there are other chemicals like metals and things that I seem to have some you know, higher than... The normal. Most of my levels, though, for most of the 320 chemicals I was tested for came out around average. No, but this gets at another point because you are a healthy person and yet you've had this exposure. And one of the other points you, you write about is that genetic susceptibility and chemicals come together along with well, chemicals being part of the environment, the things that we're exposed to, and our genetic susceptibility come together and influence each other. And in what way do they do that? Well, one of the most important messages for the book, in fact, is what I call linkage. And I'm going to be writing a lot more about this. But it's really important, uh, you know, take the genetic and the environmental impact. We as organisms, uh, we have our genes we're born with, but that's our blueprint. And there's so much emphasis on that right now. But that's just, it's like the, the blueprint for the building. It's not the building itself. And the other huge impact is the environment. And I think some of the parts of the book that I, I was most proud of are trying to link together these environmental tests that I took you know, for these toxins with my genetic sensitivity 
you know, what I'm born with to fend off these these toxins. Well, say more about that in, in the ways in which your environment and the chemicals and so forth that you might be exposed to interact with your genes and, and ways in which your genes can either make you more susceptible to them or actually protect you. Well, let's use mercury as an example. That's an example I give throughout the book. In fact, I start out catching a fish on the book. And I have that halibut that I caught for lunch and a swordfish for dinner. And those are two fish that have high levels of mercury. The, the larger the fish, the more mercury, and fish being our major source for mercury. And I did a before and after blood test, and I went from you know four parts per billion to 13 parts. The 13 is much higher than, than the threshold that the EPA would like you to be at. So that was the first experiment, but then I took it beyond that to see if I had genetic markers that made me sensitive to mercury. And this is pretty preliminary data at this point because there hasn't been a lot of great linkage between the geneticists and the people that deal with toxicity. But if you read the book, I came out okay. I came out protective. But since then, I've discovered that there are a couple of genes that actually do make me sensitive to mercury. Um, but that's the future here, really, of all of this. We're going to stop emphasizing genes so much, and we're going to link together these two disciplines, because that's really what happens inside of us and, and inside of every organism. Was there a moment in the testing where you felt like you had opened a Pandora's box? I think there was a risk in this project of finding out something that, that might scare me. I don't know. I, I guess coming from a healthy family, you know, my, my family tends to live a long time, basically die of old age mostly. I think I have a very different reaction than someone who might have a disease, you know, running through their family. And, you know, for instance, a, a friend of mine who's a scientist that started a sequencing company has Huntington's disease running through his family. And Huntington's is 100%. If you have that gene, you will get Huntington's. And it's a horrible disease, and that family knows it very well. He came out okay. He didn't have the genetic marker. His cousin, however, did, and she committed suicide You know, later on when she was starting to get to the age where you get Huntington's. So I just didn't expect anything like that, I, partly because I knew I didn't have anything like that. But you know, who knows? I mean, you know, there may be still something. We haven't analyzed anywhere close to everything that's in there, and there may still be something. Thank you very much for talking to us. Thank you. David Ewing Duncan is a journalist and author of Experimental Man, What One Man's Body Reveals About His Future, Your Health, and Our Toxic World. If you want to take a gander at David's personal data or even take a few tests yourself, you'll find a link to his site at ours, radio.seti.org. Up next, why all the fuss about being healthy when disease helped us evolve in the first place? You're listening to Are We Alone? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Well, we've been hearing about how to cure disease with some pretty sophisticated technology. Fighting off illness, staying healthy as long as possible, sounds like a plan to me. Unless disease isn't the enemy. Evolutionary biologist Sharon Moalam has a surprising attitude about illness. Certain genetic diseases have survived as long as they have throughout our evolutionary history, he says, because they've helped us in some way. In his book, Survival of the Sickest, Dr. Moalam looks at the upside to genetic disease and the surprising connection between illness and longevity. I came about this doing genetics research, and it was specifically a, a gene that gives an increased risk for Alzheimer's, and 30% uh, of Europeans carry this gene. And the big question I asked was, why would such a big percentage of the population carry this gene? And, and upon further investigation, I found out that it, actually this gene confers some somewhat protection against deadly microbes, and specifically, and possibly the bubonic plague. 
So, in other words, this gene arose to protect us from one thing, but in fact it brought some bad baggage with it, but presumably on balance from an evolutionary point of view, it was still a win? Most definitely, and especially because it's a short-term win because it allows you to survive. Long-term becomes an issue only when lifespan kind of really increased. Since a lot of the problems with it, of course, are in old age, and the other thing that the gene does is cardiovascular problems. But again, you only see that in fifth, sixth, seventh decade of life. It almost sounds as if had we the lifespan that they used to have. I mean, I think in ancient Egypt, the lifespan was like 25 or 30, something like that. If you're lucky, yeah. (laughs) Right. Okay. You know, if a big hunk of limestone doesn't fall on top of you. Right. That uh, we wouldn't really get sick. Um, Yeah, well, we we would, but I guess that it all depends on the trade-offs. And if it's for short-term gain and long-term cost, then there's a lot of pressure to make that happen. And it seems to be that most of these disease genes that are involved in anything from cancer to high cholesterol actually have some type of short-term protective quality, and that's why they were selected for. And, and of course, we're not talking about uh, the very rare mutations, but the common genes that you see definitely more than 1% in the population. Well, maybe you could give me some examples of diseases that, while trying in the short term, might be good in the long. Sure. Well, the long-term kind of example that, that's been given for the last 50 years is sickle cell anemia offering some protection against malaria. And that's always been seen as more as the exception than the rule. And if uh, through other research has been extended, now we know that other conditions such as favism, which is the inability to uh, eat fava beans, actually they can kill you, um, is also somewhat protective against malaria. Thalassemia is also malaria. And the one that I did research in, which is hemochromatosis or iron overload, uh, being protective against infectious diseases. So these are just some examples that kind of get us out of short-term problems and then, and then possibly in the long run cause other bigger issues. Was that protection against hemochromatosis the one that allowed our predecessors to survive, you know, the Black Plague? Um, most definitely. I mean, that, that's the, the hypothesis that I postulated. And uh, reason being is it seems that the specific mutation, that uh, the one that is called C2A2Y, that does cause hemochromatosis, you only find it in Western Europe. In Western Europe, as we all know, suffered horribly during the bubonic plague. In some areas, 50 to 70% of the population perished. So definitely the ones who survived had some type of genetic advantage uh, over the ones who didn't. And it could be it's due to this gene, because essentially this gene results in the body putting away iron in inaccessible places. And iron is what many microbes that attack us, including the bubonic plague, need to survive and uh, go on to even kill us. Okay, so this gene helped protect us against the Black Death, the bubonic plague, but then the survivals, the, the, the people that make it through that, they have the mutation that gives this condition. Uh, they survive, makes sense. But why does that mutation continue to survive now that the, the plague is passe? That's such a great question. And this is just, you know, this constantly comes up when you kind of look at evolution and natural selection. Because it, it offered that protection early on and doesn't seem to cause complications until you're well past any age of reproduction, then, you know, from an evolutionary standpoint, not a personal one, it's a good trade-off because, you know, you've, you've had your kids and you've, you've even now been a grandparent before you start actually seeing ill effects. So there's, there's a lot less than pressure to get rid of this mutation to, for it to be pushed out of a population. So these mutations have a, a lot of inertia. Uh, most definitely. And if you think about it, it really only takes less than one generation if there's a major uh, environmental or pathogenic cataclysm with, with millions of people die for the genetic makeup of the population to shift. And that's really kind of how evolution works. We typically don't think that um, evolution is still affecting us today, but we, we are in a continual state of survival. What about diabetes? I understand it helped us survive during the ice ages. Um, yeah, so this is another idea that, that I postulated, and it has to do specifically with some forms of diabetes. Of course, we know now today that it may be related and definitely is to diet. And from some perspectives, it has to do with what our ancestors ate. If our ancestors were typically uh, hunters and gatherers and didn't have access to a lot of complex carbohydrates, then they wouldn't have evolved the pancreas with the ability or the need to break down all these sugars. On the other hand, is a very interesting animal that's called the wood frog, Rana sylvatica, and it has the ability to freeze solid every winter, and it does this by becoming diabetic. 
And the question that I had was, could it have any relation to the human form, say, type 1 diabetes, which is more prevalent in Northern Europe? And of course, type 1 diabetes is deadly if it's untreated. But the question is, if some people have a little bit of unregulated sugars, and this happens to any of us, actually, if, if we're exposed to the cold, our sugar levels naturally rise. And it's the body's kind of immediate response to go into antifreeze mode. And that extra sugars in our blood uh, helps us kind of, you know, deal with the cold. So by, by asking bigger questions, stepping back and trying to figure out, reverse engineer, so to speak, where disease comes from, we can give us a better idea of, of how to come up with new treatments. Okay, well, I can understand that. What you're saying is that, that biology is destined by geography. Maybe that's sort of a, a, a funny way of saying it. But what about non-disease traits? I mean, you mentioned the different tolerance for alcohol between Europeans and Asians. What, what's the deal there? Oh, it's very interesting, again, and, and this is something, you know, we always talk about nature and nurture and how much the environment can kind of affect us. And when it comes to Asia, it seems that there wasn't a big evolutionary pressure to be able to break down alcohol. In fact, 50% of people of, of Asian descent lack the requisite genes to be able to break down alcohol properly. And you can actually see this. The face is kind of an like alcoholic flush. Your face goes red and you appear really intoxicated, but in fact, you're just kind of having an allergic reaction. And again, it might just go back to history, the fact that in Europe, there's so much fermentation going on, and uh, a lot of the calories could have been consumed through alcohol, whereas in Asia, this wasn't typically done. You know, the, of course, they did have few alcoholic beverages, but it, was, it wasn't something that was consumed on a daily basis by, by the majority of the population. So there wouldn't be this pressure to be able to break down alcohol. And consequently, you actually see this with lactose tolerance, the ability to break down sugars in milk into adulthood. And actually, different mutations um, arose in Africa and in Northern Europe in the populations there that allow us to, or allow those people to break down alcohol into adulthood. Most of the world is actually uh, lactose intolerant. So in the case of alcohol, then it's, it's a matter of uh, culture shaping our genome. I mean, if you drink wine, then you develop the ability to break down alcohol. And if you drink tea, you don't. Right. So, you know, simply put, and again, it has to, though, have been a big pressure and subsequent from a natural selection point of view or, evolution, or evolutionary point of view, that it would be a big advantage to you meaning if you would be able to break down alcohol or like the example I gave about milk and to get a lot of your nutrition that way and then went on to have more children, you would then subsequently pass those genes that would allow you to break down those compounds in the environment onto your children and in future generations. I can imagine that drinking a lot of alcohol might encourage you to have more children. Well, <laughs> well finally, Sharon, you say that with these evolutionary trade-offs, these mutations that may cause some short-term disease but protect us against other stuff in the long term, that we're sort of on the hook and we're never going to get off the hook. But come on, isn't medicine sooner or later going to get us off this hook by solving all these problems at a molecular level? Um, you know, it's really hard to know what the future holds, but I think the one thing that we should always remember and I think and to be humbled by is the ability of microbes to develop a resistance either to the compounds that we throw at it in the form of antibiotics or to our very own uh, immune processes. And it's been a very long time in our evolutionary history since we fell prey to, you know, giant uh, saber-toothed cats. Most of the things that uh, kill us today, when we look around the world anyways, is things we can't see, such as viruses and bacteria, and as we're discovering prions too. So if you just look at what's happened in the last 50 years where we thought initially that we, we, we were at the position of being able to conquer all these microbes and infectious diseases would be a thing of the past, you know, then HIV came on the scene. And, and now we actually seeing, you know, that, that con the constant emergence of new viruses and microbes is a part of life. And I guess just to answer your question, that, uh, simply put, that no matter what kind of uh, advances we make, we're always going to be faced with a threat that can out-evolve us. And I guess we should always be, we consider ourselves lucky to be able to be alive. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll keep that in mind. Sharon Moalam, thank you so much for talking with me. Well, thanks for, for having me. Sharon Moalam is a neurogeneticist and evolutionary biologist working at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine. He's the author of Survival of the Sickest, A Medical Maverick Discovers Why We Need Disease. Well, even though some disease may be good for a particular group of humans, as individuals we continue to strive to be healthy and long-lived. I mean, how could we not? Improvements may come from personalized medicine based on genomics, but there's another research area that holds great promise, or at least great hope, stem cells. Of course, they're also controversial with those who decry any therapy involving cells taken from embryos. But there are other sources of stem cells, 
and they're helping cure some, well, otherwise stable patients. I'm here at the University of California, Davis, where scientists are advancing research on stem cells. Now, these are the master cells in the body that have the potential to grow into any kind of cell and replace damaged cells. And I'm about to meet some of the patients who are benefiting from the research here. Now, this is Miss Annie. She's one of the horses here in the new veterinary medical laboratory at Davis. The regenerative medical laboratory is one of only four university-based veterinary stem cell labs in the country, and it's designed to provide stem cells to horses and treat bone, tendon, and other injuries. Thousands of horses suffer these injuries every year. Hi, I'm Sean Owens. I'm a veterinarian here at the University of California, Davis School of Veterinary Medicine, and I'm also the director of the Veterinary Regenerative Medicine Laboratory. Now, Sean, you're using stem cells to treat injuries with Miss Annie here and the other horses we have in the paddock? Yeah, we, um, about 10 years ago, a gentleman by the name of Doug Herthel, Dr. Doug Herthel in Southern California, started using stem cell therapy in horses. And since that time, there's been great interest in the therapy, and there have been very positive results for using them to treat soft tissue injuries, such as ligament and tendon injuries. And we find that that therapy combined with conventional therapy, our horses become sounder and better faster. Hi, Miss Annie. I have some grass here. Is it grass? Grass hay. Grass hay. Hey, grass hay. There you are. Now, Miss Annie here, what's wrong with her? Uh, she has arthritis. Uh, most of our horses weigh about 1,000 to uh, 1,200 pounds, and their joints aren't much bigger than our, our knees and ankles, so um, they're prone to arthritis over time, just like people are. So has Miss Annie here been, been treated with stem cells yet? She has. She has. And we've seen positive results. We've collected stem cells from her, and she will be getting injections back again. Now, how is it that stem cells can help with inflammation? Because that's what arthritis is, right? It is inflammation surrounding the joint, and over time it leads to instability in the joint and the body's attempt to stabilize that joint. Stem cells, we know, do have an anti-inflammatory effect in and of themselves, and what we're hoping is that stem cells will go in and not only provide that anti-inflammatory effect, but also have a direct effect on the joint so that it improves overall joint health and speeds healing as opposed to further degeneration. I'm cornered by horses here, one in the front, one in the back. Here's a white one. What's his name or her name? Uh, Susie. So she's a little quarter horse. Take like four of them to make a real horse? Four of them to make a real horse. At least that's what thoroughbreds think. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, the biggest controversy in stem cell research for humans is where you get the stem cells. And it's a collection of stem cells from embryos that has made the research so controversial. Where did these stem cells, these horse stem cells, come from? Well, that's one of the nice things with our research is that we don't use... Uh, embryonic stem cells. We use adult-derived stem cells, and by that I mean we use stem cells that have either come from umbilical cord blood, umbilical cord tissue, or bone marrow, and we're just starting to use fat-derived stem cells. So fortunately, there is no ethical dilemma associated with them. It's tissue obtained from the, the patient for the benefit of the patient. How long did it take since you injected Miss Annie that you began to see that she was feeling better? Within about 24 hours, the anti-inflammatory effects, we do see a noticeable difference. And within about two weeks, we start seeing significant improvement if they're going to improve. Not every patient will improve with this therapy. And that, that, I guess that's one of the major points to consider is that, you know, while stem cells offer great promise, they're, they're not a cure-all, they're not a magic bullet, and, and there are going to be certain injuries and diseases that they're not going to work for, at least as far as we know right now. But hopefully if they equal one-tenth of the promise that we have for them, it'll, it'll significantly change the way we look at horse health. Can we go into the lab to see where some of this research happens? Oh, certainly. We'll show you where it all happens. This is the lab that we're coming into? Yeah, this is our new laboratory. It's part of our, our blood bank and our transfusion medicine service. The person that oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the stem cell laboratory as well as the transfusion medicine service is a woman by the name of Julie Burgess. Well, that woman is standing right before us. Yes, she is. Hi, my name is Julie Burgess, and I'm the supervisor for the Regenerative Medicine Laboratory. Well, Julie and Sean, if, if I had a horse that was not well and we had already diagnosed what the problem was, I bring my horse in because I, I want her to be treated, what happens next? Um, the next step would be for them to harvest the stem cells from either the sternum or the tubercoxy, so that being the hip. So you take out the bone marrow, that's the first thing you do, and how do you isolate those stem cells? So we put it into a process using equipment that centrifuges out the different components of the bone marrow, and one of them being the stem cell concentrate, another being the plasma, and another portion being the red blood cells. Now that's the equipment that you're holding right here? Correct. 
the equipment that we use has an optical sensor on it that can tell the difference between the different layers of bone marrow, and those layers being red blood cells, white blood cells, and then the clear liquid plasma portion of it. And the stem cells that we're after are contained within the white blood cell portion, and they represent a very, very small fraction of that. And what our equipment allows us to do is to, is to concentrate those very infrequent cells into a smaller bag so that we can then expand them in our tissue culture laboratory. Can I see some of the, the stem sure, cells? Can absolutely. I see actual horse yeah, stem cells? Absolutely. So all I've done is open up the incubator and pulled out one of the flasks that are growing cells in them. So, so in that flask there, there are some stem cells? There are stem cells growing. That's from inside a horse? It is. So if you look in the microscope, you can see that I've isolated some of them for you to look at. Okay. So all those little dark spots there, mm-hmm. are those stem cells? Those are stem cells. How do they know what to do once you inject them into a horse? How does it know to repair a tendon or whatever it might be? Well, the, the short answer to that is if you answer that question, you win a Nobel Prize. The long answer to that question is there are signal messengers, chemicals circulating throughout your body that tell all of your cells what to do all day long. Some of them ask them to grow and proliferate and fight infection. Some of them tell some cells to die when they're supposed to die from old age. And that's what we're trying to figure out here is what are the messenger signals that are most appropriate for these cells so that they go in, do the job we're asking them to do, and um, repair the tissue damage. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. You're very welcome. Sean Owens and Julie Burgess are at the Veterinary Regenerative Medicine Laboratory at the University of California at Davis. And that's it for our show. A good thing, too, is I think I'm getting a little hoarse. You've been listening to RX's Get Personal on Are We Alone? And we'd like to give a personal thanks to Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance for their help with the program. Also to the NASA Astrobiology Institute and to the SETI Institute, where searching for life elsewhere in the universe means first understanding life here on Earth. If you can't get enough of the program you just heard and want to hear it again or past shows, go to iTunes for the Are We Alone podcast or our website, radio.seti.org. I'm sorry, you said you wanted an encore? I'm me, me. I gotta be me. I've gotta be me. I've got to be me. What else can I be? The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news in technology and culture. Their award winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.